Part One, Chapter Seven of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One, Chapter Seven, Luxuries at the Great House. The close-fisted stinginess that fed the poor slave on coarse corn meal and tainted meat, that clothed him in crashy tow linen and hurried him on to toil through the field in all weathers, with wind and rain beating through his tattered garments and that scarcely gave even the young slave-mother time to nurse her infant in the fence-corner, wholly vanished on approaching the sacred precincts of the great house itself. There the scriptural phrase descriptive of the wealthy found exact illustration. The highly favoured inmates of this mansion were literally arrayed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. The table of this house groaned under the blood-bought luxuries gathered with pains taking care at home and abroad. Fields, forests, rivers, and seas were made tributary. Immense wealth and its lavish expenditures filled the great house with all that could please the eye or tempt the taste. Fish, flesh, and fowl were here in profusion. Chickens of all breeds, ducks of all kinds, wild and tame, the common and the huge muscovite, guinea fowls, turkeys, geese, and pea-fowls, all were fat and fattening for the destined vortex. Here the graceful swan, the mongrel, the black-necked wild goose, partridges, quails, pheasants, pigeons, and choice waterfowl, with all their strange varieties, were caught in this huge net beef veal mutton and venison of the most select kinds and quality rolled in bounteous profusion to this grand consumer the teeming riches of the chesapeake bay its rock perch drums crocus trout oysters crabs and terrapin were drawn hither to adorn the glittering table the dairy too the finest then on the eastern shore of maryland supplied by cattle of the best english stock imported for the express purpose poured its rich donations of fragrant cheese, golden butter, and delicious cream to heighten the attractions of the gorgeous, unending round of feasting. Nor were the fruits of the earth overlooked. The fertile garden, many acres in size, constituting a separate establishment distinct from the common farm, with its scientific gardener direct from Scotland, a Mr. McDermott, and four men under his direction, was not behind either in the abundance or in the delicacy of its contributions. The tender asparagus, the crispy celery, and the delicate cauliflower, eggplants, beets, lettuce, parsnips, peas, and French beans, early and late, radishes, cantaloupes, melons of all kinds, and the fruits of all climes and of every description, from the hardy apples of the north to the lemon and orange of the south, culminated at this point. Here were gathered figs, raisins, almonds, and grapes from Spain, wines and brandies from France, teas and various flavor from China, and rich aromatic coffee from Java, all conspiring to swell the tide of high life, where pride and indolence lounged in magnificence and satiety. Behind the tall-backed and elaborately wrought chairs stood the servants, fifteen in number, carefully selected, not only with a view to their capacity and adeptness, but with a special regard to their personal appearance, their graceful agility, and pleasing address. Some of these servants, armed with fans, wafted reviving breezes to the overheated brows of the alabaster ladies, whilst others watched with eager eye and fawn-like step, anticipating and supplying wants before they were sufficiently formed to be announced by word or sign. 
these servants constituted a sort of black aristocracy they resembled the field hands in nothing except their color and in this they held the advantage of a velvet-like glossiness rich and beautiful the hair too showed the same advantage the delicately formed colored maid rustled in the scarcely worn silk of her young mistress while the servant men were equally well attired from the overflowing wardrobe of their young masters so that in dress as well as in form and feature in manner and speech in tastes and habits the distance between these favored few and the sorrow and hunger smitten multitudes of the quarter and the field was immense in the stables and carriage houses were to be found the same evidences of pride and luxurious extravagance here were three splendid coaches soft within and lustrous without here too were gigs phaetons barouches sulkies and sleighs here were saddles and harnesses beautifully wrought and richly mounted not less than thirty-five horses of the best approved blood both for speed and beauty were kept only for pleasure the care of these horses constituted the entire occupation of two men one or the other of them being always in the stable to answer any call which might be made from the great house over the way from the stable was a house built expressly for the hounds a pack of twenty-five or thirty the fare for which would have made glad the hearts of a dozen slaves horses and hounds however were not the only consumers of the slaves toil the hospitality practised at the lloyd's would have astonished and charmed many a health-seeking divine or merchant from the north viewed from his table and not from the field colonel lloyd was indeed a model of generous hospitality his house was literally a hotel for weeks during the summer months at these times especially the air was freighted with the rich fumes of baking boiling roasting and broiling it was something to me that i could share these odors with the winds even if the meats themselves were under a more stringent monopoly in master daniel i had a friend at court who would sometimes give me a cake and who kept me well informed as to their guests and their entertainments viewed from colonel lloyd's table who could have said that his slaves were not well clad and well cared for who would have said that they did not glory in being the slaves of such a master who but a fanatic could have seen any cause for sympathy for either master or slave alas this immense wealth this gilded splendor this profusion of luxury this exemption from toil this life of ease this sea of plenty were not the pearly gates they seemed to a world of happiness and sweet content to be the poor slave on his hard pine plank scantily covered with his thin blanket slept more soundly than the feverish voluptuary who reclined upon his downy pillow food to the indolent is poison not sustenance lurking beneath the rich and tempting viands were invisible spirits of evil which filled the self-deluded gormandizer with aches and pains passions uncontrollable fierce tempers dyspepsia rheumatism lumbago and gout and of these the lloyds had a full share i had many opportunities of witnessing the restless discontent and capricious irritation of the lloyds my fondness for horses attracted me to the stable much of the time the two men in charge of this establishment were old and young barney father and son old barney was a fine-looking portly old man of a brownish complexion and a respectful and dignified bearing he was much devoted to his profession and held his office as an honourable one he was a farrier as well as an ostler and could bleed horses remove lampers from their mouths and administer medicine to them 
No one on the farm knew so well as old Barney what to do with a sick horse, but his office was not an enviable one, and his gifts and acquirements were of little advantage to him. In nothing was Colonel Lloyd more unreasonable and exacting than in respect to the management of his horses. Any supposed inattention to these animals was sure to be visited with degrading punishment. His horses and dogs fared better than his men. Their beds were far softer and cleaner than those of his human cattle. No excuse could shield old Barney if the colonel only suspected something wrong about his horses, and consequently he was often punished when faultless. It was painful to hear the unreasonable and fretful scoldings administered by Colonel Lloyd, his son Murray, and his sons-in-law, to this poor man. Three of the daughters of Colonel Lloyd were married, and they, with their husbands, remained at the great house a portion of the year, and enjoyed the luxury of whipping the servants when they pleased. A horse was seldom brought out of the stable, to which no objection could be raised. There was dust in his hair. There was a twist in his reins. His foretop was not combed his mane did not lie straight his head did not look well his fetlocks had not been properly trimmed something was always wrong however groundless the complaint barney must stand hat in hand lips sealed never answering a word in explanation or excuse in a free state a master thus complaining without cause might be told by his ostler sir i am sorry i cannot please you but since i have done the best i can and failed to do so your remedy is to dismiss me but here the ostler must listen and tremblingly abide his master's behest one of the most heart-suddening and humiliating scenes i ever witnessed was the whipping of old barney by colonel lloyd these two men were both advanced in years there were the silver locks of the master and the bald and toil-worn brow of the slave superior and inferior here powerful and weak here but equals before god uncover your head said the imperious master he was obeyed take off your jacket you old rascal and off came barney's jacket down on your knees down knelt the old man his shoulders bare his bald head glistening in the sunshine and his aged knees on the cold damp ground in this humble and debasing attitude that master to whom he had devoted the best years and the best strength of his life came forward and laid on thirty lashes with his horsewhip the old man made no resistance but bore it patiently answering each blow only with a shrug of the shoulders and a groan i do not think that the physical suffering from this infliction was severe for the whip was a light riding whip but the spectacle of an aged man a husband and a father humbly kneeling before his fellow-man shocked me at the time and since i have grown older few of the features of slavery have impressed me with a deeper sense of its injustice and barbarity than did this existing scene i owe it to the truth however to say that this was the first and last time i ever saw a slave compelled to kneel to receive a whipping another incident illustrating a phase of slavery to which i have referred in another connection i may here mention Besides two other coachmen, Colonel Lloyd owned one named William Wilkes, and his was one of the exceptional cases where a slave possessed a surname, and was recognized by it, by both colored and white people. Wilkes was a very fine-looking man. He was about as white as any one on the plantation, and in form and feature bore a very striking resemblance to Murray Lloyd. It was whispered and generally believed that William Wilkes was a son of Colonel Lloyd by a highly favored slave woman who was still on the plantation. 
There were many reasons for believing this whisper, not only from his personal appearance, but from the undeniable freedom which he enjoyed over all others, and his apparent consciousness of being something more than a slave to his master. It was notorious, too, that William had a deadly enemy in Murray Lloyd, whom he so much resembled, and that the latter greatly worried his father with importunities to sell William. Indeed, he gave his father no rest until he did sell him to Austin Waldfolk, the great slave trader at that time. Before selling him, however, he tried to make things smooth by giving William a whipping, but it proved a failure. It was a compromise, and like most such, defeated itself, for Colonel Lloyd soon after atoned to William for the abuse by giving him a gold watch and chain. Another fact somewhat curious was that though sold to the remorseless wold folk, taken in irons to Baltimore, and cast into prison, with a view to being sent to the South, William outbid all his purchasers, paid for himself, and afterwards resided in Baltimore. How this was accomplished was a great mystery at the time, explained only on the supposition that the hand which had bestowed the gold watch and chain had also supplied the purchase money but I have since learned that this was not the true explanation. Wilkes had many friends in Baltimore and Annapolis, and they united to save him from a fate which was one of all others most dreaded by the slaves. Practical amalgamation was however so common at the South, and so many circumstances pointed in that direction, that there was little reason to doubt that William Wilkes was the son of Edward Lloyd. The real feelings and opinions of the slaves were not much known or respected by their masters. The distance between the two was too great to admit of such knowledge, and in this respect Colonel Lloyd was no exception to the rule. His slaves were so numerous that he did not know them when he saw them. Nor, indeed, did all his slaves know him. It is reported of him that riding along the road one day he met a colored man, and addressed him in what was the usual way of speaking to colored people on the public highways of the South. "'Well, boy, who do you belong to?' "'To Colonel Lloyd,' replied the slave. "'Well, does the Colonel treat you well?' "'No, sir,' was the ready reply. "'What, does he work you hard?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, don't he give you enough to eat?' "'Yes, sir. He gives me enough to eat, such as it is.' The Colonel rode on. The slave also went on about his business, not dreaming that he had been conversing with his master. He thought and said nothing of the matter, until, two or three weeks afterwards, he was informed by his overseer that, for having found fault with his master, he was now to be sold to a Georgia trader. He was immediately chained and handcuffed, and thus, without a moment's warning, he was snatched away, and forever sundered from his family and friends by a hand as unrelenting as that of death. This was the penalty of telling the simple truth, in answer to a series of plain questions. It was partly in consequence of such facts, that slaves, when inquired of as to their condition and the character of their masters, would almost invariably say that they were contented, and their masters kind. Slaveholders are known to have sent spies among their slaves, to ascertain, if possible, their views and feelings in regard to their condition. Hence the maxim established among them that, a still tongue makes a wise head. They would suppress the truth rather than take the consequences of telling it, and in so doing they prove themselves a part of the human family. I was frequently asked if I had a kind master, and I do not remember ever to have given a negative reply. I did not consider myself as uttering that which was strictly untrue, 
for I always measured the kindness of my master by the standard of kindness set up by the slaveholders around us. End of chapter 7